Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill. I'm sure many of you recall that earlier this year, there was a showdown over the House speakership of Representative Kevin McCarthy. Because we do not trust Mr. McCarthy with power, because we know who he will use it for, and we are concerned it will not be for the American people. We trust Jim Jordan. I nominate him, and I'm going to vote for him. Those events highlighted one of the more impressive grifter trains that's now docked in the U.S. Capitol. The idea that you have this new generation of anti-imperialist lawmakers, many of whom just happen to be loyal to Donald Trump and his movement. While some members of the Freedom Caucus do consistently take on serious issues that should be confronted, including on war, civil liberties, and the increasing power of tech companies, this newly launched select subcommittee to investigate the, quote, weaponization of the federal government It's not being established to engage in the kind of rigorous investigation embodied by the House Committee on Assassinations or by the Church Committee in 1975. This new committee, it's clear, is going to largely be a partisan lollapalooza of wacky theories and totally hypocritical attacks. What's notable, however, is that by taking on issues that have long been associated with the political left in the United States, These Republicans who've been banging the drums about the deep state have unmasked just how much the established power within the current Democratic Party actually reveres the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, and the broader national security state. New Congress, new subcommittees. In a partisan vote, House Republicans this week approved the creation of the Select Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. The vague resolution that created the committee gives it the authority to broadly investigate the executive branch and any federal agency that falls under its control. The committee will have subpoena power and be charged by, excuse me, be chaired by Ohio Republican Jim Jordan. In my time in Congress, I have never seen anything like this. Dozens and dozens of whistleblowers, FBI agents coming to us, talking about what's going on, the political nature at the Justice Department. The U.S. has long needed a church-style investigation into a wide range of abuses by the state and its security and intelligence forces under both Democratic and Republican administrations. 
particularly one focused on the actions of the U.S. government from 9-11 to the present. There has never been anything close to a serious probe into the massive abuses that occurred under George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, both internationally and domestically. Nor has there been a serious probe into the extent to which the Obama administration normalized and systematized assassination as an acceptable and frequently used practice. Simply put, these strikes have saved lives. Moreover, America's actions are legal. We were attacked on 9-11. Within a week, Congress overwhelmingly authorized the use of force. Under domestic law and international law, the United States is at war with Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and their associated forces. We are at war with an organization that right now would kill as many Americans as they could if we did not stop them first. So this is a just war, a war waged proportionally in last resort and in self-defense. The tragic reality is that there are no current lawmakers with the spine, the will, or the political influence to launch such a probe against the U.S. intelligence military apparatus. In fact, such a committee would be impossible to imagine given the current state of the Republican and Democratic parties. So today on the show, we're going to take a trip back in time to an era when the CIA was operating as a lawless, largely autonomous entity within the U.S. government. The agency was orchestrating coups against popular democratic governments from Guatemala to Iran, from Chile to the Congo and beyond. It was spying on anti-war activists and black power leaders inside the United States. It was working in concert with large American corporations abroad and crushing labor movements and anti-U.S. revolutions all the while doing so without any oversight from Congress and at times behind the back of presidents of the United States. Well, the operation chaos, and that is that, uh, that the, apparently the CIA had a group set up that was, direct, was concerned directly with uh, matters affecting domestic intelligence collection or events that were occurring within the continental United States. Uh, I didn't, uh, we didn't know about that. In fact, the impression that we had all along was that the CIA uh, had very little interest in or coverage of areas which we thought were important, which was what happened abroad when these people uh, who were under uh, surveillance by the FBI left the country. That's where we thought the CIA effort should be. All right. Do you have any information, can you tell me quickly, who authorized either COINTEL or CHAOS? Was it a presidential authorization? I, I, I don't think so. I, I don't not, think, I don't think any president knew about it. It was not until a Democratic senator from the state of Idaho decided to take on this unaccountable, powerful, covert force within the national security apparatus of the U.S. government that some of the CIA's crimes and abuses were first presented to the U.S. public. Senator Frank Church chaired a committee in 1975 that sought to rein in the CIA and impose laws and rules for its conduct and its oversight. We regard the assassination plots as aberrations. The United States must not adopt the tactics of the enemy. Means are as important as ends. Crisis makes it tempting to ignore the wise restraints 
that make men free. But each time we do so, each time the means we use are wrong, our inner strength, the strength which makes us free, is lessened. Some of the witnesses who cooperated with the church committee were threatened. Others died under mysterious circumstances. It is an extremely important moment in modern U.S. history, and the work of the church committee is unfortunately relevant to this moment. A new book has just been published this week that tells the story of the man behind the church committee and how an unlikely hero emerged to battle the most powerful secret entity in the U.S. government. The book is called The Last Honest Man, The CIA, The FBI, The Mafia, and The Kennedys, and One Senator's Fight to Save Democracy. Its authors are a father and son team. My colleague James Risen is a senior national security correspondent for The Intercept and two-time Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author. Thomas Risen has spent years reporting on U.S. politics and national security, including the intelligence community, digital surveillance, and the war on terror. He currently works as an aviation journalist. James Risen, Thomas Risen, I want to welcome both of you to Intercepted. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thomas Risen, thank you for a first-time appearance on Intercepted. Thanks for having me. Jim, I want to start with you. Uh, we're we're going to talk about uh, CIA dirty deeds, uh, the, the path that led to the War Powers Act, the path that led to uh, the establishment of actual committees in the United States Congress that would have meaningful oversight of the Central Intelligence Agency. But this book that you and Thomas have written, I, I first have to say, I, I, I think it's a gripping book. Uh, I, I, I think it's a, it's a very easily readable book, and it distills a really complex arc of dark American history in, into a really manageable history. Um, and I encourage people to pick this book up because it's extremely relevant to the times in which we're living. We're going to get into all of this stuff, CIA misdeeds, the church committee, but let's, let's just start with the simple biographical question. Um, Jim, explain who Senator Frank Church was. Frank Church was a fascinating character. He was a liberal Democrat from Idaho, which uh, doesn't sound like it's possible today. But he was probably the most progressive senator in the 1960s and 1970s uh, in the United States Senate. And he was extremely consequential both during the Vietnam War and in the 1970s in a period of progressive reform. And uh, he is probably more responsible than anyone else in American history for reining in the power of the CIA and the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, his The Church Committee, which he led in 1975 and early 1976, was the first time uh, that the CIA had ever been submitted to any form of real oversight. And it's uh, his efforts at the, in the church committee that have brought the U.S. intelligence community under the rule of law. So I think he's one of the most important people in American history that very few people know about. I've been telling people he's the most important senator you've never heard of <laughs> because he, he was in office from 1957 to 1981. He spanned so many of the most important events of the Cold War and just was everything from civil rights to the Panama Canal. It's, it's, the Church Committee is his big achievement, but he did a lot. 
I wanted to ask, you know, he he clearly was dramatically impacted by the way that the Vietnam War went. He himself uh, was a World War II veteran, but when he first was elected, I think he was elected at the age of 32 to the United States Senate. When he was first elected, his his major issues were not really centering around American foreign policy. Um, and in fact, at the beginning of the Vietnam War, he more or less, as, as you write in the book, was kind of going along with the war train and gen generally seemed to sort of believe what the American people were being told by their leaders. But talk about why and when he started to question what was happening in the war in Vietnam and set the political context. Because as you write, Church emerged as one of the earliest critical voices on that war. Yeah, he was, uh, as you said, he had been, he had served in uh, World War II in China. He'd been an intelligence off, army intelligence officer. And he had grown very disgusted with the corruption in the Chinese nationalist uh, regime of Chiang Kai-shek. And he brought that uh, attitude with him back to the United States. And uh, when he got in, into the Senate in the 1950s, however, he was still a cold warrior. He was uh, the Democratic Party in the late 1950s was really trying to prove its uh, Cold War bona fides to counter uh, McCarthyism and the rise of uh, red baiting that had been, you know, so rampant in the early 1950s. And so you had the really what what I guess you would call the Kennedy-esque Cold War approach, which was trying to be more hawkish than the Republicans on the Soviets. And so in the late 1950s, Church was very conventional in his thinking about foreign policy. But it was early in the 1960s, after the Kennedy administration got involved in Vietnam, and he took his first trip to Vietnam in 1962, and he began to see just how corrupt and incompetent and stupid the war was. And he really relied on his experience in China to see through what the uh, what was happening in Vietnam very quickly, much more quickly than uh, almost any other senator. One thing I noticed researching the 20th century is it wasn't just the Democrats, it was everyone who just believed what the government told them because most of human civilization is don't ask questions, your authority figures are always right. And it was really World War I or World War II that changed that because these are global wars all at once, everyone's asking questions, how could this happen? Frank Church is in the middle of that. He fought in World War II, so did a lot of his colleagues. And it was really the baby boomers who were more willing to ask questions. Like he has a son, his son Forrest Church is even more liberal than he is and thinks his dad is kind of a sellout, even though he's one of the most liberal members of the Senate. So it was a generational thing too. It wasn't just a political thing. Yeah. In fact, you guys tell this story about when um, Forrest Church gets married, uh, Frank Church and his wife, uh, it was unclear that they were even going to be able to go to the wedding because uh, Church was at the center of really intense political moments in Washington, D.C. And then they arrive at the wedding and discover that uh, his son, Forrest, and, and his wife, uh, to be are going to take what they characterized as pacifist vows and that they actually had created like almost like anti-war leaflets to pass out at the wedding. Right, and and right. Uh, and the, the church has basically said, we can't stay at this wedding if you distribute these pamphlets to the right. guests. Right, right. Yeah, that was uh, the, probably the most 
the biggest crisis, personal crisis that Church had was his relationship with his oldest son, Forrest. And Forrest was uh, really depressed by the Vietnam War, and that had a big effect on Frank Church. And it led him to become more and more uh, radical in his thinking about Vietnam. And uh, it was by the late 1960s, early 1970s, he was, Church had become the leading anti-war voice in the United States Senate. Thomas, in the book you write that while Lyndon Johnson was infuriated by Frank Church and other leading, quote, doves in Congress, he was even more enraged by the growing momentum behind the anti-war movement throughout the country. So under Johnson, the CIA began to spy on American anti-war activists, work with colleges, police, and other informants to identify the leaders of anti-war groups. But Church, you write, had an instinctual sense that Vietnam was unleashing the power of the national security state that had been built in the wake of World War II, and that it was turning the United States into an imperial power rather than a democratic republic. Rather than becoming a force for peace, America was becoming a destroyer of it. Church's political outlook, you write, was now a heady mix of idealism and cynicism. Frank Church, the mainstream politician from a conservative rural state, was quietly becoming a political radical. Expand on that. Yeah, definitely, because uh, he, you know, he went to Vietnam in 1962 and just saw how absurd the situation was, and more and more and more people could not ignore it, and he thought, hey, this is insane. Why are we doing this? And there was, you know, Johnson and Nixon after him were just so insecure about the war. They're like, I don't want to lose a war. I don't want to fight the war, but I don't want to lose. I don't want to surrender. And Frank Church says, what are you doing? This is insane. And a lot of other people, like I said, it was a generational thing. They just go along because I think there was one Vietnam veteran who, in a documentary said, we were the last kids of any generation who believed our government would never lie to us. And Frank Church is kind of halfway there. And he says, OK, this has to stop. This is insane. And a lot of people just don't want to rock the boat, but he's willing to do it, which is pretty remarkable for a guy who wants to be accepted in Washington, which usually means you go along to get along. One of the things about, uh, you know, the Church's role in the fight against Vietnam, kind of he eventually took on a uh, role of leading an effort in the Senate to cut off funding for the Vietnam War in a series of amendments called the Cooper Church Amendments. And the Cooper Church Amendment debates became the centerpiece in Congress for the fight. Most people today only remember the street protests and the massive protests uh, by college students and other people against the war, and they don't really remember the congressional debates very clearly. But what interested me was how significant the Cooper Church debates were in convincing Nixon that he had to begin, had to accelerate the peace negotiations because he was losing Congress and he was losing the uh, the ability to get continue to get funding for the war. Jim, just to clarify, you're, when you say the Cooper Church amendments, you're talking there was a political alliance that formed uh, that was uh, across party lines between Senator Frank Church, a Democrat uh, of Idaho. And then Senator John Cooper, who was a Republican from Kentucky. Right. And when they first started proposing amendments, uh, I think the first one had to do with Thailand and a concern that, that the U.S. was going to expand the war right. uh, in, in that direction. And Nixon basically 
didn't care much about it, didn't raise much ruckus about it. But then you had, um, uh, under the direction of Nixon and Henry Kissinger and others, an expansion of the war, secret CIA death squads, secret bombing campaigns. And then you had this extreme political battle that starts to play out between the Nixon White House uh, with all of its malignant um, actors and actions. And then this two-person bipartisan wrecking ball trying to take on Nixon on a procedural level to, for instance, cut off funding for ground troops to operate in, in Cambodia. This end the war amendment takes the full step and provides an orderly method for the extrication of the United States from the war in Vietnam itself. And so what we're looking for is a reasonable way uh, to accomplish uh, that withdrawal. And I think that the principal stumbling block now is that we're somehow worried about losing face. We're worried about embarrassing the policymakers that sent us in there. We're worried about admitting that perhaps uh, we've made a mistake. Actually, I think it would contribute to the greatness of the United States if as a free people we could just admit that we're capable of making a mistake and then do the best we can to put an early end to it. Yeah, it was really Nixon's decision to invade Cambodia in 1970, which brought the war back into the headlines. I had forgotten until I got into this that the war had kind of faded from view because uh, Nixon had very cleverly tried to do what he called Vietnamization and reduce the number of U.S. troops in Vietnam as soon as he came in. And that had the effect of reducing the news media's coverage of the war. But it was really Kent State and the Cambodia invasion in 1970 that brought it back to the fore. And it was then that the Cooper Church Amendments began to have real teeth. And uh, it was then that Church really took the lead over the next few years in trying to reduce funding either for things like Cambodia, and then eventually actually trying to directly cut off funding for the operations in Vietnam. And that, I think, historians now generally agree that that had a major effect on Nixon's timetable for seeking an end to the war. I want to ask you both um, to, to just walk us through some of the context of how the CIA operated. Some of its uh, uh, you know, most notorious hits, if you will, uh, from its creation coming out of World War II through the moment when Frank Church starts to realize that you know, his life's calling is essentially to take on uh, all of these abuses that have been committed by the CIA. But in the book you write, without oversight, the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community had grown into a secret government within a government. That growth had rapidly accelerated in the 1950s under President Dwight D. Eisenhower, who came to view global covert operations conducted by the CIA as an essential substitute for all-out war. He wanted to challenge the Soviet Union in the Cold War without a direct military confrontation, and the CIA became his primary tool for doing so. Describe that era, the, the, the 25 plus years of the CIA leading up to uh, the Church Committee. Yeah, I think it, it started in the, you know, the CIA was created under the Truman administration, and it was an originally thought of as a place where you would gather and collect uh, centrally all of the intelligence that the U.S. government had, and uh, it would primarily be an intelligence and analytical agency. 
But there was the legislative charter for it was vague enough that it also allowed for the creation of a covert action arm. And it really wasn't until uh, Dwight Eisenhower came into office that the covert action really began in a, in a major way with coup attempts or the plans to launch coups in Iran and Guatemala, then in Cuba later. But why don't I let Tom talk about, I think one of the worst things that happened in the 1950s was that while Eisenhower was using the CIA as a substitute for armed conflict, he was allowing the CIA to do other things that they wanted to do, like mind control drug programs that Tom can talk about. Yeah, I'm... Uh... I blame Alan Dulles for so much of it. He was the first. He wasn't the first CIA director. He was the first director who was in office for more than a few years. He and his older brother John Foster Dulles. Uh, he was Secretary of State John Foster under Eisenhower. Alan Dulles was CIA director. They're brothers. Huge conflict of interest. Should have never happened. Eisenhower's a weak politician. That's my my summary there. But. They were both corporate lawyers who worked at Sullivan and Cromwell, hugely influential, knew a ton of rich people. They used the CIA to help grant favors for their rich friends, like in Guatemala and Congo and Iran, you know, oil, fruit, minerals. And these two guys should have never been in charge of their respective agencies. That's a huge part of it, is that Alan Dulles really set the tone for the CIA to become an arrogant, elitist, secret operation. And I don't know if it would have been that way if he hadn't been in charge for about 10 years and he really just set in motion so many horrible things. But by the 1970s, you see the shift. Even before the church committee, some of the dead weight and some of the real crazy people who were hired by Alan Dulles are being pushed out, like James Angleton as a paranoid alcoholic who's mentioned in the book. And um, so even before 1975 and the church committee, you see the shift in the CIA of all these people who worked for Alan Dulles. And uh, Frank Church arrived at just the right time. Uh, when this shift was already happening. Jim, you write about how Frank Church had uh, major political ambitions, that he was a complicated figure, that um, his uh, reputation in Washington was a very mixed reputation, in part because of the perception that he also liked being in the in the center of attention. He and his wife would have uh, kind of big parties at their house, and they would mingle with uh, a variety of political luminaries, but also um, Hollywood stars that you describe in the book, how Liberace showed up at one of their parties in a stretch uh, limousine. Um, but talk talk about because we're we're going to now start to get into the the very serious business of what went down with the church committee. But but for a moment, just talk about the political personality and the complex relationship that Frank Church had to established power in Washington. I think it's the fatal flaw or the or the tragic flaw in his life was that as he became more radicalized by Vietnam and by a belief that the United States was becoming a militaristic empire in the 1960s, he still, there was this other side of him that was deeply ambitious and was pushed by his wife, Bethine, who was equally, if not more so, ambitious. And he wanted to be president. And his two big ideas in his life, one, that the United States had to be reformed in order to stop it from becoming an empire, and his personal political ambition were always in conflict. Unfortunately, I think he pulled, uh, he pulled, he could have gone further with his progressive radical ideas than he did. 
and I think ultimately it was uh, his his desire for status and for the presidency ultimately I think forced him to uh, pull some of his punches. Thomas, I want to ask you um, to to set up for us uh, the the sort of precursor to uh, the Church Committee that centered around the CIA's role in overthrowing the democratically elected government of Salvador Allende in Chile in the early 1970s. But to get to that point, we need to back up a little bit to how the famed investigative journalist Jack Anderson began breaking the story about the activities of the private company ITT in Chile. First, explain what ITT was and what the origin story of this scandal looked like. Yeah, it's a major telecommunications company. Did a lot of business in, uh, you know, South America, Central America. And uh, so Richard Nixon was doing favors for them because they wanted to. It's like in Guatemala, United Fruit, Muscles, you know, big, big companies have interests in other foreign countries. And Frank Church starts to notice this. So he starts an investigation of corporate power influencing foreign policy, which is very much the case when Alan Dulles was in charge. And so he starts to, he does this investigation um, into Chile and ITT. And this is an example where Senator Fulbright definitely pulls his punches. Senator Fulbright gets a lot of attention for, you know, bringing the heat on Vietnam. But Fulbright was really, really cautious when it came to, you know, Frank Church was really the one pushing the progressive side of the Foreign Relations Committee, and he doesn't get credit for that because Fulbright kept getting all these secret documents, and he passed them to Jack Anderson because he didn't want to come out and say, hey, I have these secret documents. So he kind of lets Frank Church be the one to run with these investigations because Frank, Senator Fulbright is one of those older generation guys who says, I want to be the status quo establishment figure and not rock the boat the way Frank Church is willing to rock the boat. So all of these investigations do build on each other, and even Watergate you know, makes the church committee possible because all these, there's this huge fever pitch by 1975 and everyone is finally ready to ask questions. Yeah, the ITT investigation started, as you mentioned, Jack Anderson had investigated or had broken the story of how ITT had paid $400,000 to the Nixon re-election campaign and in exchange wanted an antitrust waiver for a merger with, for an acquisition of an insurance company. But at the same time, Another whistleblower had brought some, uh, or a journalist actually, had brought a bunch of documents uh, between ITT and the, and the CIA to Fulbright, who was then the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And Fulbright was interested in doing something with them, but then decided not to. And so he leaked them to Jack Anderson after Anderson wrote about ITT and the Nixon administration. And that ultimately led to the creation of a subcommittee of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee chaired by Frank Church to investigate the CIA and ITT in Chile and other multinational operations around the world. Yeah, it used to be legal for American companies to bribe foreign politicians, and now it's not because of Frank Church. We have the FCPA because of him. You, you, you had also um, a, a real, you tell a really interesting story about the, uh, the fate of the former director of the CIA, Richard Helms, who uh, got, got taken down as a result of this um, when Nixon uh, wants him out of the CIA because Helms is not going to play ball with um, using the CIA to take the fall for the Watergate 
break-in and the and the broader scandal. Um, but you know, Nixon, a brilliant strategist of keep your enemies close, nominates Richard Helms, um, and I, I had. I had forgotten this part of it. I did. I knew that that he had he had wanted to keep Helms in the orbit, but I didn't remember that Richard Nixon nominates Richard Helms to be U.S. ambassador to Iran, and um, and that would then subject Helms to a Senate confirmation hearing, and Frank Church and his colleagues then decide to go to town on Richard Helms, uh, and Jim pick it up from there. What happens? Yeah, Helms had to be confirmed by the Senate. And Church, Frank Church decided to take advantage of the fact that he was being confirmed, uh, had to go through hearings to uh, ask him questions about ITT and the CIA in, in Chile. And he knew that uh, Helms had been previously lying about the role of the CIA in Chile. And he was he asked a whole series of questions, had a whole series of questions prepared to ask uh, Helms. And Helms began to lie under oath. And that led to a, uh, a long uh, investigation of perjury by the Justice Department of Helms, even as he continued to serve as a U.S. ambassador to Iran. And um, Helms uh, had to fly back and forth between Iran and, the, and Washington repeatedly to testify both before the uh, the church committee and had to deal with the Justice Department prosecution of him. Now, you had uh, this, this moment in history now that we're arriving at where the Watergate break-in happens. You have, uh, you know, the, the, the wagons are now circling Nixon. You have the, the two major newspapers in the United States, the New York Times and the Washington Post, beginning to aggressively uncover all sorts of misdeeds that were committed uh, by Richard Nixon directly and by his underlings in the Nixon administration. And when Congress starts to assemble a committee that is going to be, and this was, you know, this was before the era of the internet, before the era of cable news, this is going to be watched by everyone in the country. They're assembling which political figures in Washington are going to lead this. And Frank Church, who at that point was a very well-known opponent of the war in Vietnam, it was starting to be understood that he was right about the war in Vietnam. It would have been the moment where you say, obviously, we're going to have Senator Frank Church on this committee. Um, and Church is boxed out. For, first, just briefly, why why wasn't Church appointed to serve on any of the Watergate investigative committees? Well, Mike Mansfield, who was the Senate Majority Leader, the Democratic Senate Majority Leader, handpicked the members of the Watergate Senate Watergate Committee. And he had delayed creating a, a Watergate Committee until early 1973, even though Watergate had first broken in the summer of 1972, he was very concerned about making it look bipartisan and not dominated by liberals. He wanted it, he wanted to make it look as if the Democrats were not uh, making this into a partisan uh, investigation, and so he. He, he picked uh, Sam Irvin, a senator from North Carolina who was very conservative, had been a segregationist. That was what he was best known for prior to Watergate. And he didn't want any major liberals on the committee, and so he kept Church off of the committee. And Church, as you said, had just be become this rising star because of Vietnam, and suddenly he was out of the limelight uh, on the biggest stage in the Senate. 
Yes, that's true. But as you point out in the book, uh, the fact that Church was now starting on this other path of investigation, and in fact, as you write, that Church was, quote, convinced that the sources of that power, American power, CIA, etc., were not just political or military, but economic and financial as well. So Church began a landmark investigation into the rising global power of America's corporate giants, and the trail he began to follow would ultimately lead him to the CIA. He would inadvertently begin to uncover the CIA's hidden power for the first time in his Senate career, and that would eventually lead to an even more ambitious congressional investigation of the CIA and the intelligence community, the Church Committee. To counter Washington's imperial drift, Church realized, Congress had a powerful tool that it had failed to put to good use during the Vietnam War, the ability to investigate. So Thomas, even though he was not selected for the front row seat to history with the Watergate hearings, um, his ability to sort of read the, the, the political trends and, and, and what was actually at the heart of importance in these matters ends up inadvertently putting him there and putting him on the path to the creation of what would become known as the Church Committee. Yeah, he wasn't on the Watergate Committee, but uh, his investigation of uh, corporate power, like in Chile, uh, Watergate highlighted that because people grouped it together, sort of, because they, you know, it was government scrutiny. And one of the governing trends you get from reading the book is that Frank Church was more right than he realized. Like, one of the challenges of writing a book 50 years after the fact is we know so much more, and we put some of that in the book, but we obviously couldn't overstep what Frank Church did and didn't know. But he was things were so much worse than he realized. Like, the corporate bribery and the ties of the CIA were so much worse. Like, he investigates corporate bribery of Japan. That was instigated by the CIA, who started bribing the Japanese politicians right after World War II, and he didn't know that. So there's he was very, very right, more than he realized. And I think that one of the things that I always thought was kind of funny was he started the, the uh, multinational investigation of the CIA and ITT. The subcommittee was created in 1972, but the, uh, the Nixon administration pressured the Senate to delay the start of his investigation until 1973. And as a result, they because they didn't want it during the presidential election in 1972. But as a result, the uh, multinational subcommittee started its hearings at almost the same time as the Watergate hearings. And as a result, as Tom said, the two seemed to be uh, all part of the same investigation to the public. It looked like it was it was a kind of an offshoot of Watergate. Let, let's let's get now to the to the heart of of uh, of the of the book, um, uh, sort of the climactic uh, end to the book. Um, talk about how the what came to be known as the Church Committee was formed, what its mandate was, and and how things kind of kicked off, Jim. Yes, I, you know, a, a, a man who I know you and I both have a great deal of respect for, Cy Hirsch who was at that point really at the peak of his reporting powers as a journalist. He had uh, investigated Me Lai and um, Watergate, and he was then at the New York Times. And as he was working on Watergate, he began to hear about abuses at the CIA. And so he kind of split off from covering Watergate and secretly began to investigate the CIA in 1974. And in December 1974, he 
broken a, ma a massive story about domestic spying by the CIA on mostly on anti-war dissidents uh, during the Vietnam War. And that story uh, it had a huge impact in Washington. And it led Congress to demand to uh, it led to a lot of demands for investigations of uh, the CIA. And um, that led the Senate to create the uh, church, what became the Church Committee, and the House to create what later became the Pike Committee, which were to the first real investigations of the CIA. And it, the reason they were able to finally conduct real investigations of the CIA was the in the midterm elections of 1974, the Democrats had won a landslide. And they had 60 senators and uh, almost 300 uh, members of the House. And so they had overwhelming ability to uh, do what they wanted uh, in, the, in Congress. And so they very rapidly created investigative committees to investigate the CIA. And one of the trends is uh, 1974 and 1976 have some of the lowest voter turnout in decades prior to that because everyone was so disillusioned with the government, they stayed home. But not Democrats. They went out and voted. That's a cautionary tale right there. You know, you need to keep people interested so that they'll vote. And another interesting factoid is the CIA's domestic spying during Vietnam was called Hydra, like the Captain America movies. Hail Hydra. You know, it's pretty crazy. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What was the reaction when when it became clear that this this was not going to just be a sweep, you know, take take a couple of lumps and then sweep the rest under the rug? When it was clear that this was going to be a real investigation, uh, I mean, getting getting so down the rabbit hole that they investigated the like a shellfish poison dart gun uh, that that the CIA had manufactured. Isn't it true too that? Um the, the effort not only involves designing a gun that could strike a, a human target without knowledge of the person who'd been struck, but also the toxin itself would not appear in the autopsy? Well, there, there was an attempt. Or the dark? Yes, 
so that uh, there was no, no way of perceiving that the, uh, the target was him. As a murder instrument, that's about as efficient as you can get, isn't it? It, it is a weapon, a very serious weapon. But the CIA realizes, like, this is not going to just be a, a, a kind of low-scale, uh, temporary thing. There's going to be real stuff exposed here. What was the response from the agency at the time to the church committee? Oh, they hated the church committee. They tried to stop it. Uh, both the Ford, uh, Gerald Ford was the president then. Both the White House and the CIA did their best to try to blunt the uh, efforts to uh, for a major aggressive congressional investigations. And the leader of the efforts in the White House was uh, Dick Cheney, who was then the deputy White House chief of staff under Donald Rumsfeld. And Cheney decided, really, Cheney and Rumsfeld came up with the idea of the way to try to blunt a congressional investigation was to create a presidential investigation uh, that could be controlled and uh, create a whitewash of all the problems and make it go away. And so they came up with the idea right after Cy Hirsch's story came out for a what was became known as the Rockefeller Commission, which would be a presidential commission to investigate abuses at the CIA. And uh, it was uh, stacked with people who were very pro-CIA and pro-intelligence, including Ronald Reagan, who had just been uh, – who had, uh, was just coming off being governor of California and was thinking about running against Jerry Ford for president. And so it was a uh, – it was an effort by uh, the White House and the uh, – with the cooperation of the CIA to – prevent Congress from doing major investigations, but the Senate and the House both ignored uh, that effort and just created their own committees anyway. You, you write in the book uh, that Church's historic achievement, bringing the intelligence community under the rule of law, did not come easily. Three Church committee witnesses were murdered, including one before he could testify. No one has ever been able to determine whether any of them were killed because they talked or were planning to talk to the committee, but the coincidences kept piling up and the killings brought an unnerving sense of danger to the church committee. What, what was that, that environment like the church was operating in? Was he afraid that he himself was going to get, you know, find a shellfish poison dart to the <laughs> neck or, I mean, no, seriously. I mean, was he, yeah, yeah. did church fear that he was going to potentially be targeted for assassination inside of the United States by the CIA for investigating? Well, I don't know about whether he thought he was going to be murdered, but he did fear that he did know and suspect that they were trying to discredit him and uh, that they put out rumors and false allegations and disinformation against him. Um, but the he began to get very worried once their witnesses started getting murdered. Like Tom got uh, was very good at getting all of the police files for all those cases. Maybe why don't you talk about Sam Giancana? Yes. Uh, the witnesses who were murdered were Sam Giancana, Johnny Rosselli, and Orlando Letalier, which we disclose in the book that uh, never before re um, revealed is that um, Chilean dissident Orlando Letalier uh, spoke with the church committee and not all of it was made public. That was part of a deal that he made with the CIA because the CIA said, oh, I don't want you to talk about our clandestine operations and so they didn't reveal all that, but um, 
all three of those people had a target on their back to begin with, but talking to the Senate didn't help. Like, the two mafia guys already kind of outlived their useful, usefulness, and people, you know, don't live to old, die of old age in the mafia, so they were, it was kind of the last straw for them. And uh, Orlando Letelier, you know, Pinochet was already after him, and he, when, when it was revealed that he had connections with Congress, he said, okay, I have to step this up, and he car-bombed them in 1976. He, he car-bombed them in, what, it was in the United States, wasn't it? In Washington. Yeah. Downtown Washington, yeah. Latelier Moffitt, and um, I, I believe at the time Latelier was uh, was working with the Institute for Policy Studies, yes. which is a progressive right. think tank in Washington. So right. this was a this was a car bomb assassination that took place in the nation's capital right. of a witness that had been cooperating in an investigation into the CIA, including the CIA role in overthrowing the democratically elected government that Orlando Latelier was a supporter of. Right, right, and we f- I found a. Um a old declassified cable uh, where Kissinger talks about how the head of the Chilean intelligence service came to visit him and said, uh, I don't like the fact that uh, Letelier is talking to Congress. Well, he didn't specifically mention the church committee. The fact that Letelier was talking to people in Congress was clearly one of the reasons he was assassinated. What about I, – I'd like for you guys to um, explain uh, the relationship of uh, the CIA director, William Colby, to the executive branch in the United States because he was a complicated figure. There have been documentaries and books. He's an interesting figure in the, the story and the history of the, the CIA. But also his approach to the church committee, which got him in trouble – uh, among the sort of lifers uh, at the CIA, the kind of elite class that Thomas was talking about earlier. But explain who William Colby was and his uh, approach to running the CIA and cooperating with the church committee. Yeah, Colby was a lifer at the CIA. He had started in the OSS in World War II and uh, parachuted into Norway and did other operations and then in the 1960s, he was Saigon station chief for the CIA and also played a role in uh, leading and creating what became known as the Phoenix Program in Vietnam, which was essentially, an, you know, the CIA has long denied it, but it was essentially an assassination program in, against the Viet, Viet Cong leadership. And I believe from a lot of reading of what Colby said and did so that he felt he was a Catholic and he felt deep remorse for what he had done in Vietnam. He would never admit that. In fact, he denied that uh, the Phoenix program was a, an assassination program. But I believe that he came into the 1970s thinking that the CIA had to change and that it was time for congressional oversight. And so when the church committee began, he was willing to cooperate. And he cooperated much more with church than has ever been known before. Uh, I found letters uh, or uh, memos from church where he talked about secret meetings he had with uh, Colby during the uh, church committee uh, process. And that really, eventually the Ford White House figured that out that he was cooperating much more than they wanted him to cooperate with with them. And so Ford fired him in the fall of 1975. It's really interesting. The Rockefeller Commission that um, uh, Ford set up was kind of a lip service. We're not actually going to investigate. 
kind of committee, but William Colby actually volunteered information. Like he was the one who disclosed the, the existence of LSD tests, like which was really, look it up, MKUltra's horrible, horrible stuff. It was a torture program that actually informed the Phoenix program, like all the torture and, you know, tens of thousands of people they killed in Vietnam with very little intelligence. And yeah, he definitely felt guilty about it, I think. And uh, so Rockefeller Commission is telling him, hey, stop sharing all this information. We're not really trying to investigate you. And then that helps inform the investigation that the church committee does. And he's very forthcoming. Even the House Pike Committee gets kind of a raw deal because there was a print, you know, William Colby went to Princeton, the chief of staff for the House Committee counterpart of the church committee had also gone to Princeton and they had a rapport and they talked privately. So William Colby worked pretty closely with Congress. There was a, there's a great line in uh, Colby's memoir where he says that while he was testifying to the Rockefeller Commission, uh, at the end of his testimony one day, Rockefeller came up to him and said, do you really have to tell us all this stuff? Like <laughs> he didn't want him to talk so much. Yeah, it's interesting. One more thing about William Colby is that he was against the war in Vietnam. There were people in the CIA, like uh, Jim McCone, who was CIA director, warned Johnson, hey, this is a bad idea. Let's not do this. They went along anyway. Again, it's a generational thing. There are these people who don't want to rock the boat. Even if they don't like it, they'll do it anyway, because that's just what you did. I, I want to ask you about some of the specific revelations that came out of the church committee investigations. Um, talk about the series of plots to assassinate Cuban leader Fidel Castro. <laughs> yeah, that was the, the centerpiece of the uh, church committee findings was uh, the investigation of the CIA's plots to kill foreign leaders, uh, including Fidel, most notably Fidel Castro. Well, this is shaping up as a bad week in Washington for the big brother aspects of government with several investigations underway involving snooping and undercover activities. Today, the Senate CIA investigators heard testimony from underworld figure John Rosselli about an alleged CIA mafia plot to assassinate Fidel Castro. The centerpiece of their investigation was to investigate a plot or a scheme by the CIA to work with the mafia to uh, kill Castro. And they got um, through a cutout, an FBI, former FBI agent named Robert Mayhew. They connect, the CIA connected with um, Johnny Rosselli, who was a Hollywood gangster, Sam Giancana, who was the chief of the Chicago mob, and Santo Traficante, who was the head of the Florida mob, uh, and got them all together at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach to try to figure out how to kill Castro. And they came up with a whole bunch of schemes, mostly in involving getting poisons to people who were close to uh, Castro who, uh, who could then poison him. Those plots never worked, but uh, there were also the CIA tried a number of other crazy harebrained ideas at least they thought about them. It's unclear in some cases whether they actually did anything about them or whether they were just ideas at uh, the CIA headquarters. One was to put toxins inside a, a scuba diving outfit that they would give to Castro as a gift anonymously. Another was uh, giving uh, poisons or, or toxins that would make his hair fall out 
You have that famous scene. You have that famous scene in Oliver Stone's JFK movie where David Ferry is losing his mind and he's talking about how they wanted to humiliate Castro by making his beard right. fall off. Right, right, right. And the the greatest uh, irony to me was that on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, the CIA was meeting in Paris with a leading Cuban uh, exile who had been very close to Castro. And we're getting him to yet one more time to plan to kill Castro. And while they, when they, the CIA officers came out of the meeting in Paris, they learned that John Kennedy had been assassinated that day. So there was a whole, you know, it went on for years. It started in the Eisenhower administration in the late 1950s and continued into the 60s. Uh, and, uh, it never worked. I, I have a feeling, I have a belief that the scheme they tried with the mafia was really the, the one that they did the most work on. And I believe that it was undermined by Santo Traficante, the head of the Florida mob who had previously run casinos in Cuba. And I believe that he was playing a double game and wanted to get back into Cuba with Ca under Castro's regime. And so I think he made sure that uh, nothing ever came of the plots. Yeah, it's entirely possible. Santa Traficante, they, a lot of people ran casinos in Havana, you know, who worked in the mafia. So it wasn't crazy to ask them for information, but to ask them to kill a foreign leader, that's a step too far. But Santa Traficante was locked up in Cuba because he, a lot of these other mob bosses left, but Traficante stayed. He said, I'm going to stick it out, see what happens. He got thrown in jail. And he's mysteriously let out of jail. And then he goes back to America. So that's ample opportunity for him to have been turned as a double agent. Jim, there's also the, um, the assassination of the Congolese leader, Patrice Lumumba. Arrest, ill treatment, imprisonment, death. Such was the fate of Patrice Lumumba. And it has been the signal for violent reactions in many parts of the world. First, in the United Nations itself, where a Security Council meeting was violently interrupted. And uh, the, the CIA had denied for, and continues to deny its involvement in the assassination of, of Patrice Lumumba. But uh, talk also about the probe into that assassination uh, by the Church Committee. Yeah, I think... One of the things that became clear is that um, the CIA's role in the Lumumba assassination is much more significant than they've ever admitted. Uh, they were directly involved in trying to kill Lumumba. They had, they had hitmen in uh, Congo trying to kill him. The CIA station was given poison to try to kill him. And then when uh, the uh, local uh, opponents of uh, Lumumba working with the Belgians did uh, try to try to capture him, the CIA station chief and the uh, was providing them information on on uh, Lumumba's whereabouts. And so I think they were they were much more directly involved than they ever wanted to admit. And I think they knew exactly what was going on, and they were very happy that he was he was murdered by uh, some breakaway uh, separatists and the Belgian authorities. One of the interesting things is that Frank Church and his wife, Bethine, actually went to Congo. They were there 
right after he'd been captured. So they had a front row seat for how this all went down, but they were being lied to by the State Department and the uh, and the CIA. Well, not the CIA, but they were being lied to by the State Department because they were on a tour, actually with Ted Kennedy back in 1960 when this is going on. And the CIA station chief there took his own initiative and gave bribe money to help Joseph Mobutu stage a coup in the first place. So the whole reason that Patrice Lumumba got overthrown two months after the nation became independent is because of the CIA, because they said, we don't like you, go away. And they proceed to try to kill him because he was very charismatic and they were worried he could still be a threat. Jim, on a domestic level, um, how much information came out about the extent of domestic spying that the CIA was doing on anti-war groups, on black nationalist groups, on activist organizations? What 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 kind of information was exposed uh, for the public to understand during the course of the Church Committee investigations about domestic spying by the CIA? They had a they had quite a bit. You know, quite a bit was. Uh, public because, uh, as I said, Cy Hirsch had broken the story to begin with. Um, the And so a lot of it was becoming public. The problem they had, though, was that uh, Church decided, because, of, because he had a reputation as a kind of a publicity hound, he was very concerned about making sure that a lot of their uh, uh, hearings were closed to the public because he wanted to prove to the Congress and to the CIA that uh, that they could uh, avoid too many uh, leaks and disclosures. And so a big chunk of their uh, initial investigation was behind closed doors. And that led to some uh, media coverage, which was partial and incremental and sometimes misleading of what they were actually finding and what they were actually doing which uh, is a real lesson as a journalist to see what somebody's actually doing versus what was uh, what was in the coverage at the time. Well this this is why this is why I'm asking you because you had uh, journalists breaking this story at at a, a, a time that was coinciding with uh, congressional bodies including in the Senate uh, that have the power to subpoena people that have the ability to get uh, primary players uh, in front of um, not just the senators, but in front of the cameras. And it, it seems, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to pick at these things, but it, it seems like there also were a lot of really blown opportunities during the course of the of the church committee hearings. I mean, I'm saying this with the caveat that hindsight is 2020, and it's very easy to pick this stuff apart. And, you know, you, you have witnesses uh, mysteriously dying. Um, but when I when I read about the church committee and I read transcripts and I watch hearings, I, I, I always have am left with this sense that, yes, a lot came to, to the forefront. Um, there were important revelations, but it, it, it seems as though the CIA managed to kind of like the Scooby-Doo mysteries in a way, like the opposite of a Scooby-Doo mystery. They still sort of got away with it. That's my sense. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of people who thought that at the time. That was one of the criticisms of the church committee at the time was that uh, they were letting the CIA go. And to some degree, that's true. They, they were constantly battling uh, or trying to balance between um, gaining access to information and how hard to fight to get even more information. And church decided... Uh, he had a, a committee that was uh, – he was trying to continue, make it 
make sure that it was bipartisan. And one of the, the most important things for him was to negotiate access to documents from the White House and the CIA. And to do that, he got he had to have a bipartisan approach. And so John Tower, who was the ranking Republican on the committee, would go with Church to the Ford White House and, uh, and push for access to documents. But Church knew that he couldn't push too far if he wanted to continue to get Republican support on the committee. And he thought many times about when to subpoena people and when not to subpoena documents or individuals. And he knew that every time he would push for a subpoena, that would lead to a lengthy delay. And um, so he tried to avoid using, uh, seeking subpoenas and tried to get cooperation. And the result was, excuse me, that there were a number of times when he didn't uh, push as hard as he could. And probably the most important area that that was true on was in covert action. Um, the CIA really pushed back hard on the uh, church committee's will, uh, desire to investigate a whole number of covert action operations that had been conducted. And um, as a result, church agreed to just do one investigation that would become public of covert action, and that was Chile. Uh, and they did, I think, four or five other covert action investigations, uh, but did not write about them publicly. And uh, so it was, it was a real balancing act for Church, how far to push, um, because the ultimate goal he had really was to convince both the government, the administration, and Congress that it would be okay to set up permanent intelligence oversight committees. And so he wanted to sh prove that it could be done in a way that could be cooperative and collaborative. Um, and that was his end, his, really his major objective was the creation of a permanent Senate intelligence committee. And it could only be done if there was some sense of a bipartisan collaboration. And, and, and in a way, the, the, the kind of end to this story is the creation of those committees, um, but also out of the rubble of parts of the CIA's reputation, you have the ascent of one George H.W. Bush to become director of the CIA. Talk about Bush's rise to power and how Frank Church um, uh, responded. Yeah, that, to me, that's one of the worst, uh, you know, I, I to learn about what Bush really did, it shows you the ruthlessness of the Bush family, uh, and and how tainted their political legacy really is. Uh, uh, as I said earlier, you know, Colby was fired in the fall of uh, 1975 because he had cooperated too much with Church. And his replacement was George Herbert Walker Bush, the future president. Uh, he was, at the time, um, U.S. envoy to China and had previously been uh, the uh, head of the Republican National Committee during Watergate and so had been a major apologist for Richard Nixon during Watergate. And it was clear to church that 
um, Nixon was chosen by Ford to be the opposite of Colby, to be someone who is a partisan who would fight back against church and fight back against uh, the efforts at disclosure and oversight. And so church fought against uh, Bush's nomination and confirmation. And he was just beginning to fight Bush's confirmation when um, the CIA station chief in Athens, Richard Welch, was assassinated. And Bush and Ford and the CIA all immediately exploited Welch's murder to try to con convince the American public that um, it was the disclosures of the church committee that led to Welch's murder and that Frank Church couldn't be uh, trusted. And it was all an effort to discredit Church and get Bush confirmed. Yeah, people had repeatedly warned Welsh when he got to Greece. Uh, he was station chief in Greece. People repeatedly warned him, hey, you have to be more careful. Everyone knows this mansion that the CIA uh, station chief has been, has been living in. So Welsh wasn't careful. And, you know, there was nothing to do with the church committee, but it was definitely uh, useful for them to exploit. Well, and also, I mean, and you, you know, Jim, you, you also uh, are revealing new information. You have a piece that's going to be coming out soon in The Intercept about this exact episode that you're talking about um, in Greece. But it wasn't just that Frank Church was being smeared. Um, it was also the, uh, the, the CIA whistleblower, Philip Agee, um, who was blamed and saying that Agee was responsible for the death of the CIA station chief in Athens and elsewhere. And in fact, I believe it was Barbara Bush, George H.W. Bush's wife, in her memoir, um, actually said that Phil Agee was responsible for the death. Um, and then they, they, she had to retract it. They had to take it out of subsequent uh, publication. But this is actually quite, for people that followed this history, this is probably one of the most uh, important nuggets that you're bringing to light in your book is it gives lie to a, a multi-generational smear campaign against Frank Church and the late Phil Agee. Right. Yeah. I mean, the what I found the most amazing thing was how long this uh, cover-up has been going on. It's really, as you say, a 50-year cover-up of the truth about the Welch murder and uh, the CIA and the uh, government has continued this lie that somehow the church committee's disclosures uh, led to Richard Welch's murder. And I think it's really one of the first examples of the weaponization of intelligence for political purposes. Uh, and it was, in fact, uh, Greek intelligence leaked his name to uh, the Greek press because they were uh, mad at the United States for its policies on Cyprus. It had nothing whatsoever to do with the church committee. And the CIA, uh, I interviewed the deputy station chief for the CIA in Athens, at, who was deputy station chief at that time, who said that it, that, that it was obvious that the KYP, the Greek intelligence service, had leaked Welch's name to the Greek press. And um, he reported that back to Washington. But people ignored that in Washington. They wanted to use this to score political points against Frank Church. We, we only have a, a couple of minutes left, but I, um, I, I want to tie up some of these loose ends here. We were talking about the rise of George H.W. Bush. And, you know, you, um, you, you state pretty clearly the significance uh, that you would assign to the Church Committee 
and uh, reining in the CIA for its abuses. Um, at the same time, Jim, even even though you do have these CIA oversight bodies in the form of the United States Senate, I, I, I think you couldn't argue with this fact that in general, the, the vibe of the Senate toward the CIA, the vibe of most senators toward the CIA and these committees is um, it, it's a pretty pro-CIA uh, operation un, and until it becomes politically untenable or impossible to start actually aggressively going after the CIA. And th this is sort of the, part of what I want to end on. And we can also talk about Jim Jordan and their committee and the kind of uh, grifter train that the Trumpist movement has parked in Washington under the guise of taking on Imperial Washington. Um, but I but I want to talk a little bit about that period, uh, the period that we're living in now that came after the church committee, where you do actually have these bodies that are supposed to be able to investigate the CIA. Um, and yet we have the CIA running an extrajudicial kidnapping program, a torture program, black sites set up across the world, disinformation campaigns um, not only being waged against foreign adversaries, but against the U.S. public, culminating with Barack Obama's CIA director, John Brennan, um, overseeing an operation to spy on United States Senate torture investigators. So, you know, on the one hand, you're you're painting, uh, I think, an accurate picture of the legacy of Frank Church. And on the other hand, you got to grapple with the fact that the CIA has continued to engage in the same kinds of abuses that it did when it didn't have anyone supposedly guarding the hen house. Right. No, that, that's one of the, the complicating factors. And you're absolutely right. I think that I guess the way I would describe my thinking on this was that uh, Prior to 1975 and the Church Committee, the CIA really could get away with anything. There was no rules. There were no rules that they uh, even for them to violate. Uh, they could do whatever the hell they wanted. After 1975 and after the Church Committee, there were rules. You had you could violate them, and it would be up to uh, the Justice Department or Congress to actually call you on it. Um, but there were rules. There was a rule. There was there was a rule of law that they were supposed to be following. Uh, they have continually and e egregiously violated those rules over the years. But the difference is that there are now rules. There were no rules before, uh, and I believe, I be, you know today we have this. What I would call a conspiracy theory that there is a deep state. Uh, I don't believe there is a deep state. There is a military-industrial intelligence complex that is deeply rooted in the U.S. national security apparatus, but it is not the deep state of Trump imagination. And I think the reason we don't have a deep state today is because of the church committee, because Frank Church and the church committee created rules uh, and brought some standards for the actions of the intelligence community. They constantly abuse them and constantly violate them. But those rules now exist so that we can um, have some form of accountability at some points. And so it's obviously not, it's deeply flawed, 
But those rules now exist, and I think that's the ultimate legacy of the church committee. F- final subject on 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 all of this. Um, you you now have this really insane dynamic in Washington D.C. Um, on the one hand, you have the Republican Party, which has um, has experienced a, a split. Uh, you know, it still is unified on most issues. We should you know put that out there right right now, front and center. But on, on the issues we're talking about here, there is an interesting split that's taken place in the Republican Party. And, you know, a lot of this played out in a very public way when Kevin McCarthy was trying to consolidate his support uh, to take control of the House speakership earlier this year. And you had Matt Gates and, and, and other members of, let's just say, the Trumpist political movement wielding their power and, um, you know, and, and getting really serious concessions from McCarthy as a result of holding up his speakership. Um, but you have Jim Jordan now, who's one of the biggest charlatans in Washington, uh, presiding over a committee that he and his supporters are likening to the church committee. And, you know, it's possible, um, probably likely, that there will be relevant, uh, publicly uh, helpful Point, facts that come out, um, it would be hard not to because it's Washington, D.C. But the general tenor of this investigation or these investigations that they're running is conspiracy theories, um, wackadoodle, insane, racist diatribes, um, totally uh, 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 insane relationship to facts and truth. And the level of seriousness of many of the issues that they're taking on um, just don't rise to the level of a congressional investigation in many cases, not to mention the comparisons to Frank Church. Now, you know, I know, Jim, you could probably talk for an hour about this subject, but I just want to get you on this one narrow question of people who compare what this Jim Jordan committee is doing to what Frank Church and his colleagues were taking on in 1975 with their investigation. Yeah, it's it's a ridiculous comparison, as you say. I mean, it's uh, night and day. It's there's I don't understand. Well, I guess I do understand why Republicans have de- descended into conspiracy theory uh, world and how they uh, have kind of lost touch with reality. Uh, but that's what they now they're the view that they have of the intelligence community is dangerous because they see it now as nothing more than a political weapon to be used or abused one way or the other. Uh, and it, it's it's kind of frightening to think that people like this could have any real power in, in America. Uh, but they, you know, they want to prove weird theories about their political enemies. Uh, and that's just not what uh, the church committee was about. I think one of the the great things about the church committee was how deeply rooted in facts and evidence and documents that their investigation was, and how uh, thoroughly they they uh, sought to prove every point that they that they made. And it was uh, it's really I think probably the greatest congressional investigation in modern history. And for for Jordan to compare what he's doing to the church committee is, is ridiculous. One of the things I think about Jordan's committee that 
makes it a, a stark contrast to the church committee is that um, the church committee was as successful as it was because it was so bipartisan. This is one of the most refreshing things about the book that you're going to see throughout is just how different party politics were back then. I mean, Barry Goldwater was on the church committee. He was like the granddaddy of American conservatism. Everyone we spoke with said that he was polite and professional to work with, which is rare these days a little bit. And, you know, they did their job. They weren't obstructionists. Embarrassing things came out about the Kennedys during the, you know, committee, and the Democrats went along with it and shared it, and, you know, they got their job done. And that's a very refreshing thing that you see in the book that kind of contrasts with today. And that's why I'm not very optimistic for Jim Jordan's prospects is because, you know, Congress is not as, you know, professional as it used to be in Frank Church's time. You know, one one uh, I didn't I didn't want to go on with this, but but I, I did I did want to just sort of also throw one other perspective uh, uh, at you uh, about this question. I mean, I'll, I can spend all day blasting Jim Jordan and the Republicans and that specific committee. I've, in recent episodes of this show, I've also alluded to my 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 views on that. But on the other side, though, I do think, and I'm very curious what you what you think of this. I, I think that what we've seen in the kind of Trump broke a lot of people's brains uh, era that we're in, um, I, I I think that we're seeing the Democrats becoming a little or or, or quite deferential to these institutions because in you know, probably in large part because of the perception that Trump and the Republicans are trying to destroy them. Um, political alignments are shifting right now um, in, in the United States, in the broader public, certainly, and in Washington, D.C. Um, but you did have a bunch of egg on the face, uh, on the faces of former intelligence officials at key moments during the Trump-Russia stuff. Um, you know, it's not to say that they were that they were always wrong, but there were some pretty high profile um, you know, uh, uh, mistakes, blunders, maybe intentional disinformation that was put out there by former, very senior intelligence officials. And my perspective on that is that the Democrats and these former CIA people, they're making a huge mistake. They're making a bunch of own goals when they stick their necks way out and cry Russia disinformation when it turns out not to be. It's not that there isn't Russian disinformation, but I mean, Jim, you have to concede there have been some pretty high-profile fuck-ups, uh, if you want to be generous about it, uh, with former intelligence officials signing letters, making assertions that turn out not to be true. Yeah, yeah. And I think the, to me, the interesting, I guess I would step back and think, you know, you and I have experienced the war on terror uh, beginning with 9-11. And 9-11 really transformed the intelligence community into something that it really wasn't in the decades prior to that. Uh, it became a, 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 a war-fighting, killing machine, targeting individuals. Uh, and that really transformed the, the nature of the CIA and the U.S. intelligence community and brought in uh, a whole new era in which uh, the CIA and the intelligence community became known for killing individual people. Uh, then the war on terror has kind of faded. And what we're left with in this kind of quasi-peace period is the CIA becoming a political weapon for use by both sides. And so intelligence information today is really only important for getting headlines for one side or the other. Um, 
And so we've gone from this weird period where the CIA had transformed itself into a killing machine and suddenly becomes a political weapon. Um, and so I think the views, the American view, or at least a lot, I think a lot of people's views of what is the CIA today, what is the U.S. intelligence today, is now seen as something of a political entity in a way that it wasn't before. And um, I think you're right. I think that's dangerous for everybody on all sides because it's that was certainly – it's not what it's there for. Um, just to have, you know, uh, selectively leaked intelligence reports used for political effect by whoever wants to have it. I mean, certainly there's always been leaks and I'm not – <laughs> I like leaks. But uh, at the same time, it's uh, – it's odd to see how intelligence reports are touted by by pundits and people on Twitter more than they are by anybody else. On that note, we have to leave it there. James Risen is a senior national security correspondent for The Intercept. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes. He's an author of several books. Thomas Risen has spent years reporting on U.S. politics and national security. He currently works as an aviation journalist. Thank you both for being with us here on Intercepted. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Have a great day. Thanks. James and Thomas Risen are authors of the new book, The Last Honest Man, The CIA, The FBI, The Mafia, and the Kennedys, and One Senator's Fight to Save Democracy. It's been published this week. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. Intercepted is a production of The Intercept. Jose Olivares is the lead producer. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Roger Hodge is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. William Stanton mixed our show, and this episode was transcribed by Leonardo Fireman. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. If you'd like to support our work, you can go to theintercept.com join. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Intercepted and definitely do leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people to find us. If you want to give us feedback, you can email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. That's podcasts at theintercept.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Mm-hmm.